friends, Romans, countrymen. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them, and the good is often interred with their bones. So let it be with Caesar. The noble Brutus has told you that Caesar was ambitious. If that were so, it was a grievous crime. And Caesar has answered that crime by leave of Brutus and the rest. For Brutus is an honorable man. So are they all, all honorable men. I've come to speak in Caesar's funeral. Caesar was my friend, faithful and just to me. But Brutus says he was ambitious and Brutus is an honorable man. Caesar brought many captives home to Rome, whose ransoms also filled the coffers. Did this make Caesar seem ambitious? When the poor cried, so did Caesar. Ambition should be made of sterner stuff. Yet Brutus says he was ambitious. And Brutus is an honorable man. You all did see that on the Lupercal, I presented Caesar a crown three times. And Caesar refused every time. Was this ambition? Yet Brutus says he was ambitious. And sure, he is an honorable man. I'm not here to disprove what Brutus said. But I am here to say what I do know. You loved him once, not without reason. So what stops you from mourning him? The gods will judge you, Brutus beasts, who have lost your reason! Bear with me. My heart is in the coffin there with Caesar. The Hipshman Experience, Episode 27. Lessons from Ancient Rome. Part 4, Julius Caesar, recorded September 1st, 2021. <clears throat> I have to be honest, I did not want to do this episode. 
not because I wasn't interested in who I was going to be talking about, but I kind of made this point in the last episode, how am I going to do it justice? I sat and just kind of stared at my screen for a while, just uh, trying to process how I was going to do any kind of semblance of justice for Julius Caesar. Because if there's one name, just one name, that almost everyone would know from ancient Rome, even those who, unlike me, uh, would not be that interested in the time period, they would at least know the name Julius Caesar. Now, one reason for that could be attributed to the fact that the play by William Shakespeare is named after him, and most schools throughout the United States have covered that play in some English class or literature class. But Caesar made such a mark at a crucial time in Roman history that the play is not too dissimilar from what he did and what ultimately happened to him. So it's no wonder that uh, Shakespeare made a play about him. So, the simple thing is, who, who was Julius Caesar? Well, the quick answer is that he was a Roman statesman and a military general. He was a member of what was known as the First Triumvirate. He was the one who centralized the power of the Roman Republic and was named Dictator Perpetuo, which means dictator for life, or dictator in perpetuity. He laid the foundation for Rome reaching new heights in terms of territory, wealth, and world influence. But his actions also would serve as the reason for its inevitable downfall. So how did he get here? Well, as always, we're going to go back to the beginning and start by looking at a young Julius Caesar. So he was born into a patrician family, the nobles, uh, that were known as the Julii. The Julii were descendants of those who survived the destruction of Alba Longa and were one of the founding families that settled in Rome. Now, despite their heritage, the Julii did not actually command a whole lot of political influence uh, for a long time in the early Republic. They didn't start to gain influence until Caesar's Aunt Julia married Gaius Marius, who I covered in the last episode. Marius's marriage into the family provided added influence and wealth to the Julia, but it also added danger. Marius's rivals, particularly Lucius Cornelius Sulla, became an enemy to the Julii family. Julius Caesar's father was killed as a result of this rivalry, and young Julius, at 16, became the head of the house. 
His uncle Marius did what he could to try to help young Caesar. Um, Marius and one of his allies, Lucius Cornelius Cinna, while they held influence in Rome, named Caesar the new Flamendialis, which is the high priest of Jupiter, the supreme god of Rome. Caesar would also end up marrying Cinna's daughter, Cornelia. Now, a lot of these marriages throughout history, especially among influential political figures, seem to be more so marriages of convenience than actual love. That said, it seemed that Caesar really did care for Cornelia. It appears this way because when Sulla, the rival of Marius, gained control of Rome, uh, Caesar having been part of the old regime back when Marius and his allies were kind of running the show, he became automatically a target of Sulla's faction. He was stripped of his title as high priest, uh, he lost his wife's dowry, and he lost his inheritance. He did, however, refuse to divorce his wife, despite not being the influential faction anymore at this point. And instead, he took her and he went into hiding. Now, eventually, Sulla withdrew his threat against Caesar, but Caesar still felt it wasn't safe for him to return to Rome. So since he was not able to come home, he was no longer the high priest, he decided to make the best of his situation. He joined the army. Now imagine how different history would be had Sulla not removed Caesar as the high priest because it's the decision of joining the army that Caesar begins to start the journey where he would become the legendary figure that we remember him as. His early years in the army, he already begins to make a decent name for himself. He begins by serving under Marcus Minucius Thermus, who was kind of your run-of-the-mill Roman general kind of by-the-book guy who didn't really have a whole lot of political aspirations past the rank of praetor. Maybe he did, but he just didn't really have the drive to go much farther past that. Caesar, under the command of Marcus Thermus, went to Asia in what is modern-day Turkey. During his time there, he took part in a diplomatic mission to gain the assistance of King Nicomedes, uh, particularly Roman interest in King Nicomedes' fleet. He spent quite a bit of time in the king's court, kind of observing how Nicomedes conducted himself, and you have to imagine taking mental notes on what to do and what not to do as a leader. So after spending some time there, I mean, Caesar's, he's in the, he's in the court for a year or two, and after after spending some time there, by 78 BC, word got back to Caesar that Sulla had died. So with the head of the big rival faction gone, Caesar now felt 
it was safe enough for him to return home to Rome. So he decided to start making his trip home, which would take quite a bit of time. Several years, in fact, because by 75 BC, still not home, he was on his way, he had to cross the Aegean, which is part of the Mediterranean Sea that connects, the, that connects Greece to Asia Minor. He was going to make a stop at the island of Rhodes, which, as a side note, uh, back during this time, I think, I want to say it was around while Julius Caesar was alive, there was the great statue of Rhodes. Uh, it's kind of, think of it as kind of like an early version of the Statue of Liberty, something about that size. And he was going to continue practice his oratory skills, his speech-giving skills, as on his visit to Rhodes. It was here that he was captured by a group of Cilician pirates. Now, from the start, after he was taken captive, he refused to behave like a captive. When the pirates told him that they had set his ransom at the sum of 20 talents, he laughed. He laughed hysterically. He said to them, do you, do you not know who you've just taken capture of? You should be demanding 50 talents. That would be a more appropriate amount for my ransom. So... The pirates must have been a little dumbfounded. It's not every day that a hostage negotiates his ransom up. Normally, someone who's taken hostage, you have to imagine, is probably a little freaked out. Not Caesar. He made himself at home amongst the pirates. Even kind of bossed them around somewhat, and... Uh, shushed them when he went. He wanted to go to sleep. Uh, he made them listen to his speeches and poems that he was composing in his unanticipated downtime. He even berated them. You know, he made fun of them, calling them illiterate if they weren't uh, impressed by his particular speech or poem that he uh, practiced in front of them. He'd even participate in their games and morning exercises. And he'd, he'd address them as if he were the commander, and they were his subordinates. From time to time, he'd even threaten them, saying something along the lines of, you know I'm going to have you all crucified one day, right? The pirates took it as a joke from their slightly overconfident and crazy captive. After 38 days with the pirates, the ransom for Caesar was finally delivered, and he went free. Now, interestingly enough, shortly after his freedom, he went to the nearby area of Miletus and raised a naval force, despite having no public or military office at this point, and he set out in pursuit of the very same pirates. He found them, still camped at the island where he had been held, and he brought them back as his captives. 
He wasn't joking. He had them all crucified. He was 25 at this point. And he demonstrated already that he was not someone to be trifled with. That he was not someone to be messed with. Being captured by the pirates was an inconvenience to him. But it was severely bad luck for the pirates. So after this little setback, Caesar was finally able to get back on his journey. And he returned to Rome, where he would receive his first political offices, both as a military tribune and as a quaestor in the year 69 BC. Caesar's uncle Marius was missing ever since Sulla forced him to flee. It would turn out that Marius died in 86 BC, and it apparently took a while for word to get back of his death. Now, to me, that's kind of curious, since uh, Marius had been elected consul more times than any any other Roman, and for and for word to be that slow, I don't know, it just seemed kind of odd to me. It'd be kind of like uh, taking a while for hearing about a president dying. Anyway, misfortune didn't stop there for Caesar. Uh, his aunt, Julia, also died. His wife, Cornelia, would die. Not a good year for Julius Caesar when it came to family. But he kept himself busy. That same year, he went to Hispania, which is modern-day Spain, to serve out his term as quaestor. During his time here, he encountered a statue of Alexander the Great. Now, I found that there was a, that the simple fact of there being a statue of Alexander the Great in Spain, I found that very interesting as it would likely have been an honorary statue, as Alexander didn't go west into Europe. He went east. Alexander was also a bit of a hero to Caesar, and who could blame him when you look at what Alexander accomplished in such a short time? If you haven't already, I recommend you go back and listen to episode 9, where I covered Alexander. So... Caesar sees the statue of his hero, and he's got a bit of a realization, a very unhappy realization, which was that when Alexander was he was Caesar's age, he had conquered basically the Eastern world, and that he, Caesar, had accomplished little compared to Alexander. Now, while Caesar knew that he couldn't catch up to Alexander at this point, he must have vowed to himself to live longer so that he could accomplish feats to rival Alexander. By 62 BC, Caesar continued to move up the ranks. He became a praetor, and... He served his term as praetor 
as a governor in Hispania, Spain. Uh, Caesar kind of had to be strategic and on the move. Because, as I mentioned earlier, when Sulla stripped him of a lot of his inheritance and his wife's dowry, Caesar was in massive debt. And this would be a problem for him for most of the rest of his life. So he hurried to his governorship of Hispania so as not to become a private citizen and be forced to be open for prosecution over his debts. It was good for Caesar to have friends in high places, he realized, so he turned to one of possibly the richest men to have ever lived, Marcus Crassus. There's a lot to Crassus to the point where it'd be worth giving him his own episode in the future. But for now, I'm only going to mention him in regards to Caesar. Anyway, Crassus agreed to help Caesar by paying off some of his debts and acting as a kind of guarantor towards his other debts. All Crassus really asked for in return was political support against his rival Pompey Magnus, another big historical figure. Caesar would continue, now that he had a little bit of support from Crassus, he could rest easy a little bit for a while in terms of in terms of his debts. So he continued to hone his military skills bit by bit, conquering local tribes in Hispania and earning the title of Imperator by his troops. Imperator is an honorary title bestowed upon a commander by his soldiers. Now Caesar having gained these decent victories in Spain, he wanted to have a triumph on his return to Rome for his accomplishments in Hispania, but elections for consul were coming up. Now, time was running kind of short for him here, and he could, he could not have the triumph because he would still have to be considered a soldier but if he was still considered a soldier, he couldn't run for consul. So it came down to running for consul or having a triumph with the army. Caesar likely knew that he could give future triumphs for his army, so he chose to run for consul. He was already gaining huge popularity to this point, where Senator Cato, a kind of conservative Roman senator was resorting to bribery to prevent Caesar being elected. It's almost as if Cato could almost see what was happening to the Republic and was desperately trying to preserve it. History would show it would be to no avail, though. By 59 BC, despite Cato and other Roman senators' efforts, Caesar became consul with a little bit of cunning and political maneuvering, I might add. Now, he was already in debt to Crassus, but Caesar had also been establishing an early friendship, or at least potential alliance, with Pompey. Crassus and Pompey had been rivals for more than a decade by this point. 
there were some kind of disgruntled feelings between the two, especially in regards to the Spartacus Rebellion. As, Pom as uh, Pompey basically showed up at the last minute to help put it down and claim some glory for himself instead of Crassus, who had been the one in charge for large portions of trying to put down the Spartacus Rebellion. So Crassus did a lot of the work, but Pompey kind of showed up last minute and got some glory for himself too. So Crassus would kind of have, he, he felt slighted by that, as, you know, he had done most of the work. So because of this, it'd be no small task for Caesar to reconcile, to mend, to uh, bridge the gap, the, the bad blood between Crassus and Pompey. After several talks with the two of them, Caesar explained to them that between the three of them, they had enough wealth through Crassus and political influence from Pompey and Caesar. Not that Crassus didn't have political influence, by the way. But that between the three of them, they could effectively run all public business. And so they agreed to work together and form an alliance. This alliance would come to be known as the First Triumvirate, which means the rule of three men. To cement this, Caesar introduced his daughter, Julia, named, named for his aunt, Julia, to Pompey. Pompey and Julia developed a legitimately caring relationship with each other. So, that strength, that uh, cementing of that part of the alliance was intact. Caesar would marry again, for the last time, to a woman named Calpurnia, who was the daughter of another powerful senator, Lucius Calpurnius Piso Caesonius. Caesoninus. It's a little bit of a long name. From what I could gather of this guy, there was some sort of either extended familial or just friendship between Sasoninus and Crassus. So it's just kind of completing the triangle here of the triumvirate. Basically, marrying each other's families kind of in a triangle here. So between these marriages and the agreement of this alliance, the first triumvirate was set. And at this point, practically speaking, the Republic was kind of on its deathbed. Because now just three men could basically run the show. Their first public act to announce so to speak, this alliance, was a proposal from Caesar to give public lands to the poor, by force, if need be. One senator, a Roman by the name of Bibulus, he tried to... He wasn't exactly a fan of this idea. He tried to voice his opposition 
to the proposal, saying it was a bad omen, you know, that the gods were not favorable of it. Caesar and his supporters had him ran out of the forum. And one story goes that Bibulus had a bucket of feces thrown on him on his way out. One last attempt by the opposition to Caesar within the Roman aristocracy was to give him uh, pastures and sections of woods or forest instead of an actual province to govern. This was countered thanks to Caesar's new friends. And he was given a province in northern Italy, one in Illyricum, which is part of southeastern Europe, and thanks to the fortunate or unfortunate timing, depending on how you want to view it, death of uh, the of what was at that time the governor of southern Gaul, Caesar was also given governorship of that province as well. So he's got governorship of northern Italy, Illyricum, and southern Gaul. He's got three provinces. And as a result of running three provinces, he was given the command of four legions, putting the number of troops at his disposal to was somewhere between 20 and 24,000. So his his power was rising. Now, let's keep this train rolling. Now we're moving on to his military conquests. And this is going to be Caesar's time in Gaul from the years 58 BC to 52 BC. And like I say, this is where his true military prowess is displayed. It shines. An interesting fun fact is that Caesar may not have actually initially planned on going to Gaul uh, as kind of his target of conquest. It might have actually have been the kingdom of Dacia, but large amounts of Gallic tribes began migrating to provinces that were a little worrisome to Rome. Julius Caesar used this as his justification for the for his conquest of Gaul, with particularly uh, the idea of gaining some wealth and plunder, as he knew he could not rely on Crassus forever. Now, going to war with Gaul wasn't just a simple thing to the Romans. The Gauls were kind of like the boogeymen to the Romans. 300 years prior to this, the Gauls had successfully sacked Rome. 50 years before Caesar would begin his conquest of Gaul, the Gallic tribes almost successfully invaded Roman territory again, were it not for the actions of Caesar's late uncle, Gaius Marius. The Romans respected and feared the Gallic tribes. Thanks to the reforms of his uncle and the new authority he had as consul, Caesar could levy for additional legions on top of the four that he already had command of to assist with his conquest of Gaul. So, it was a little bit uh, easier to get troops assembled to deal with them. Now, 
Caesar also developed the habit of getting to know as many of the troops in his legion. While he wasn't necessarily close friends with the troops, he established as much of a relationship as he could for someone trying to get to know thousands of soldiers. His, his idea was to understand what their needs, concerns, and fears were so that he could gain their trust and their respect by trying to accommodate for as much of those needs, concerns, and fears as he could. So not only did Caesar care about the soldiers under his command, this in turn caused the soldiers to respect and want to fight for Caesar. So with this mutual trust established, the Romans could, as a, as a unit, as a trusting unit, both soldier and commander, bravely face the Gauls. But facing them would be no easy task. The first group were the Helvidii, which was an alliance or kind of confederation of five Gallic tribes from what would be the modern-day Swiss Plateau. He, he first inf- encountered this alliance at the Sion River, I might be pronouncing that wrong, where they were attempting to cross to the east side of the river on their way to Rome. Caesar slaughtered all of them who had not yet crossed the river. So he was off to a decent start. But Caesar had a knack of kind of moving faster than his supply train could keep up with him. And so his initial supplies ran low, forcing him to march near Bibracte, near the modern-day area of Burgundy. The Helvetii tried to use this opportunity to take out Caesar early and attack Caesar's rear flank. It's a good strategy. Cut off his supply train and attack him from behind. Except that Caesar's forces were situated at the top of a hill. So the Romans not only managed to hold off the Helvetii, they then charged downhill, throwing pilums which are Roman spears, and pushed the enemy back to the point where the Romans also captured the Gaul, the Gallic baggage uh, supply train, their own supply line. What was also in the supply line was the daughter of one of the Gallic chieftains. After Caesar tended to his wounded for about three days, him and his army pursued the Helvetii, who promptly surrendered. Caesar then turned his attention to a king from Germania, who was also the chieftain of another Gallic tribe, the Suebi. This chieftain was known as Ariovistus. Ariovistus was a quote-unquote friend of Rome, according to the Senate. However, so were another tribe known as the Adui. And Ariovistus had begun his own conquest of their lands, as well as taking many of them hostage. Caesar demanded the return of the Adui hostages, as well as protection for them and all allies of Rome, 
and that no Germanic tribes crossed the Rhine, the Rhine River into Gaul. Ariovistus saw himself as equal to Caesar. He said that they were both conquerors, and that the Aedui would be safe, so long as they continued to give their yearly tribute to the Suebi, or the Suebi, his Ariovistus's tribe. In no time after this talk, this uh, exchange, Ariovistus would attack the Aedui, and reports that hundreds of clans of the Suebi were crossing the Rhine into Gaul. Word got back to Caesar that Ariovistus's target was the town of, Vis of Visantio. Caesar ordered his legions to begin marching to the town to gain a defensive advantage. Some of Caesar's officers, who were in charge of the other legions, wanted to remain at their posts. So, we've got Caesar's army initially not wanting to move. The officers wanted to remain at their posts, partly because they didn't have much military experience. The other part was for political reasons. They weren't quite loyal to Caesar just yet. So, this caused the morale of the legions to drop. Caesar was in command of the 7th through 10th legions with him in Gaul. He personally led the 10th legion. And what he did to try to boost the morale was his speech-giving skills. He issued a challenge to the officers who were in charge of the other legions, saying something to the effect of, the only legion I can trust is the 10th. Something to that effect. It was a challenge of pride to the other legions. So the other legions, not wanting to be outdone, wanted to follow the 10th legion. This little challenge paid off because the Romans arrived at Visantio before Ariovistus. The battle relatively speaking, was somewhat straightforward. The Germanic tribes under Ariovistus organized their lines by tribe, while Caesar used the practice of two units forward with one unit back in order to rotate each unit to give them each time to rest. Caesar began attacking the Germanic left flank. So, if you're a Roman and you're in the line of your army and you're looking at the enemy tribes, you would have been attacking towards your right. The Germanic lines tried to counter by charging... Actually, they I'm sorry, they did counter by charging with enough speed that the Romans didn't have a chance to make use of their pilum, their throwing spears, and they had to skip right to swords and shields. The Roman right flank, so if you're one of the Romans, the right side of your group was beginning to collapse due to kind of a makeshift phalanx formed by the Germans. So the Romans were about to collapse, but the tide was turned thanks to the son of Marcus Crassus, Publius Crassus, who on his own initiative 
He just observed what was going on, and he didn't wait for approval from uh, one of the officers above him. He called in reserves to reinforce the weakening Roman line. And the Romans were able to push back and finally break the Germanic lines, ending in Roman victory. So that's a good example. I know this is about Caesar, but that's a good example of knowing when to take initiative, when you don't have time to wait for approval from your superior officers. So with this victory, Caesar won to continue that momentum. And so he went on to win more conflicts against the various tribes inhabiting Gaul. By 57 BC, Caesar would defeat the Belgi tribe, who were harassing other Gallic tribes that were allied to Rome. That same year, Caesar also nearly suffered a defeat at the Battle of Sabus. This was located near the Sambri River. Caesar's forces were beginning to set up camp when they were ambushed by 60,000 of the Nervii tribe. To make matters worse, only two of Caesar's four legions were present when the ambush happened. Fortunately for the Romans, by this point, they were already seasoned fighters, and they were able to quickly move into their battle lines. The morale of the Romans was also strengthened by the fact that Caesar himself was fighting alongside the rest of them because they needed every able man to fight until the other two legions arrived. This is a good example of holding out and not giving up because when the other two legions finally arrived, the tide turned. So Caesar defeated the Nervii and he finished out his, his campaign for that year by mopping mopping up another tribe allied to the Nervii and sent most of the profit he made back to pay off large amounts of his debt. 57 BC was both a profitable year for Caesar as well as propping him up higher and higher as a heroic figure loved not only by the army but by the people of Rome back home. 55 BC Moving forward a little bit, Caesar would demonstrate to the Germanic tribes that Rome was not to be trifled with any longer. During Caesar's conquests in Gaul, the Germanic tribes had been crossing over from the Rhine and conducting raids against the Romans and the tribes allied with the Romans. So while Caesar's trying to defeat Gallic tribes as part of his conquest, he's got Germanic tribes crossing the river and giving him troubles as well. The Germanic tribes felt they had a safe haven to return to on the east side of the river. Now a tribe on the east side that was friendly to the Romans offered boats for Caesar and his legions to cross and deal with the other troublesome tribes. Caesar let them know that he appreciated the offer, but he had a better solution in mind. Caesar and his army demonstrated superior Roman engineering by constructing 
two massive bridges, each one in a matter of just a few days. Now, Caesar wrote a series of commentaries on his conquests in Gaul, and the fourth one, he provides some details as to the construction of these bridges. Now, what's been inferred from Caesar's account is that they used dumble, sorry, double timber pilings that were rammed into the river bottom by winching up a large stone and releasing it, thereby driving the posts into the riverbed. The most upstream and downstream pilings were slanted and secured by a beam, and multiple segments of them then linked up to form the basis of the bridge. Separate upstream pilings were used as protective barriers against flotsam and possible attacks while guard towers protected the entries. The length of the bridge has been estimated to be roughly 460 to 1300 feet and its width 25 to 30 feet. The river itself is 30 feet deep. So with these bridges, which were impressive in and of themselves, and it must have seemed like magic to the Germans watching them build these things, Caesar brought his 40,000 strong army across the river, raided and burned a few of the villages belonging to the tribes that had been crossing over to the west side of the Rhine. What this showed the Germanic tribes was that Rome would not be encumbered by a river, and that they could return any time they wanted to, and the possibility of even more legions as well than what Caesar had brought for this little demonstration. By 52 BC, this would see the last major resistance from the Gallic tribes. One reason why Caesar had been successful up to this point during his time in Gaul was due to the fact that all of the Gallic tribes had not really come together under one banner. There was that one coalition when he started of five tribes, but there were lots and lots and lots of tribes in Gaul that five is really kind of a small number. This finally changed when a Gallic chieftain named Vercingetorix managed to bring together a grand coalition of all the remaining Gallic tribes. Caesar, the multitasking general and consul, was moving back and forth between Gaul and Rome, both to continue his campaign, his conquest of Rome, but also to fulfill his duties as consul. Now, sometimes he was stuck in Gaul and he had to perform things in absentia, basically doing things while he's not back home. Pompey had to speak for him a lot of times while he was gone. Caesar was in Rome... However, when the news of Vercingetorix's uprising reached him, and he hurried north to deal with the emerging problem, Vercingetorix proved to be a worthy opponent for Caesar by not confronting Caesar head-on right away, instead conducting raids on Roman supply lines. Vercingetorix also opted to defend settlements and attack during inconvenient weather like heavy rain. So what Caesar had to do was he had to wait. He had to wait for the weather to clear and warm up before he was able to finally retaliate. Vercingetorix moved his forces to the settlement of Alesia, 
to continue his defensive strategy. This choice, however, would prove to be Vercingetorix's downfall, as he underestimated Roman ingenuity and siege works, just as the Germanic tribes did a couple years prior. Caesar surrounded Alesia with his own fortifications like trenches, a moat to counter the Gallic cavalry, and a, a new siege weapon inspired by early Greek design, now Roman improved, the Onager, or the Onager. I like to call it the Onager. This new Roman siege weapon was a torsion-driven ballista with either a long sling or a bucket that could hold heavy rocks for blasting away at the city walls or gates. After multiple attacks, several barrages of Onager flung rocks, it finally became clear that the Gauls could not outlast the Romans and Vercingetorix finally surrendered to Caesar. And the last major resistance in Gaul was finally put down. Aside from mopping up a few small tribes, Caesar had finally brought Gaul under Roman rule and vastly expanded Roman territory. So now, by this point, with Gaul under Roman control, if you look at a map of what Rome ruled during the time of Caesar, it's not much smaller than what Rome ruled at its height. It hadn't quite expanded its hold up into Britain, but it owned most of Spain, it owned Gaul, and it still spread throughout the Mediterranean to far eastern provinces. So, with Gaul finally under Roman control, Caesar was making his way back home. But while he was in Gaul, things were happening in Rome while he was away. For starters, the Senate was very critical of Caesar being in Gaul in the first place. They stated over and over that they gave no authority to Caesar to conduct his campaign. Now Caesar was able to do these things with the help of Crassus and Pompey. However, the triumvirate would begin to fall apart while Caesar was in Gaul. Like all things, nothing lasts. So in 54 BC, while Caesar's in Gaul, his daughter Julia, whom he had married to Pompey, she would die in childbirth. The child also did not survive, being stillborn. The link that held the strong alliance between Caesar and Pompey was gone. With his wife and child gone, Pompey began to no longer really feel any strong tie to Caesar, which the Senate would take advantage of. The following year, in 53 BC, Marcus Crassus would die 
while on his own campaign against the Parthian Empire to the east. And with him gone, the triumvirate, in the literal sense, was no more, and it was down to just Caesar and Pompey. And with Pompey now sided with the Senate, they were claiming that Pompey was the sole consul. They issued an order that Caesar disband his army and return home to Rome. Caesar wrote back to the Senate stating that, one, he was entitled to keep his army until his term as consul expired, but that, number two, he would be willing to disband his legions if Pompey did so as well. Caesar still had allies back in Rome. Mark Antony held the position of tribune and could veto certain decisions made against Caesar. A political motion was proposed with a two-thirds majority that would declare Caesar an enemy of Rome, that he had committed treason. This resulted in a large scuffle in the Senate House. Mark Antony attempted to use his power of veto, but due to the brawl, his veto was not heard, and therefore it carried no weight. Pompey did not want civil war. This was all kind of a political show. And since that day's session was not formally ended thanks to the brawl, they considered the next day to be the same session, and Mark Antony could use his veto. Unfortunately, he was not able to reach the Senate House the next day due to a mob of Senate supporters who assaulted Antony, forcing him and the other loyalists to Caesar to flee north and join Caesar's army. Now Caesar was given the perfect reason to keep his army on his return to Rome. In 49 BC, Caesar, with the 13th Legion, crossed the Rubicon, that river that divides southeastern Gaul and northern Italy. Upon hearing the news of Caesar's crossing, Pompey and the Senate fled Rome, having not been able to assemble an army quick enough to stop Caesar. Now, for the next two years, civil war. Roman civil war. Caesar chased and battled Pompey all over the Mediterranean, from Spain to Greece. Caesar was nearly defeated on more than one occasion, especially in the battles in Spain. Pompey was no pushover when it came to military battles. But Caesar somehow managed to snatch victory every time. After Pompey lost at the Battle of Dyrrhachium, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, it's in modern-day Albania, uh, Pompey would flee to Egypt to try to persuade the, the pharaoh, Ptolemy VII, to help him retake Rome. Not long after Pompey actually set foot on the Egyptian shore, he was assassinated. They removed his head and threw his body into the ocean. One of Pompey's servants did manage to save his head, 
and made a funeral pyre for him on the beach. By the time Caesar arrived in Egypt, he learned that the assassin was an officer of the Egyptian king Ptolemy, and Caesar was irate. Now, even though he and Pompey had become enemies, Caesar still respected Pompey immensely. I mean, he was family at one time. He was consul. He was a great general in his own right. If you'll remember when I covered Gaius Marius, and when word of the slain Romans in Africa reached Rome... All Roman citizens of every stripe were outraged. Now a consul had been slain. That would be the equivalent today of an American president being assassinated by members of another country. So Ptolemy wanted to try to appease Caesar by taking out the man that Caesar had been fighting. This would backfire. And it backfired big time for Ptolemy because Ptolemy was dealing with his own problem. He was in the midst of a feud for control of the throne between himself and his sister Cleopatra. So what he intended to be a gift for Caesar backfired and Caesar decided to help Cleopatra in the, in the uh, little quarrel. And he put her on the Egyptian throne. So now, with the Roman and Egyptian civil wars now over, Caesar could return to Rome. With the Roman civil war in particular over, Caesar sent letters to some of the senators who had opposed him, and he offered them forgiveness. One of those senators was Decimus Junius Brutus. Excuse me, uh, Marcus Decimus Junius Brutus. Brutus had been like a son to Caesar. So Caesar obviously wanted him back on his side. He was very forgiving of Brutus because he felt like he put Brutus in an impossible situation. When Caesar was on his way to Rome, Brutus was in a tough spot not knowing who to side with. So he just did what he thought was best, even though he considered Caesar like a father. Caesar felt that Brutus could help him accomplish many of the reforms that he wanted to enact. Now, while Rome was very powerful at this point, it was also very fragile. The first problem... Caesar noticed was how regional governors had certain immunities from the Senate and didn't have to abide by Senate decrees, a problem which he himself exploited. Other problems included fixing the calendar to fit with the seasons, so he added three months to the year. This would be the Julian calendar, which is nearly identical to the calendar we use today. couple of fun facts. One, uh, one of the months that he added was July, which was named in his honor and is also my birth month. 
So there we go. So there's some fun, fun stuff for you. Uh, the the one flaw with the Julian calendar was it did not take not the one flaw but the one that I can think of off the top of my head was it did not take into account leap years. The next problem that Caesar thought needed taken care of, which to be fair he kind of thought he had solved this by winning the Roman Civil War, was to basically stop armed resistance in Roman-controlled provinces. This tied with another reform he wanted, which was to give more authority to the government to prevent quarreling between governors of various, of various provinces and Rome. Lastly, of the notable reforms he wished to accomplish was to tie all the provinces together into one unit and instead of unequal different provinces based on what happened to be there for example or who was governing what what resources were there what people might have been there he wanted it all to be basically kind of one large province the way i'm understanding it the people were generally favorable of these reforms in large part because of how much caesar had done for them as well he saw many jobless romans and had Several construction programs started to give them jobs. He had them build things like temples, forums, bathhouses, just to name a few, so that his people could make a living. He didn't like walking around being the, the guy on top and looking around and seeing everybody, you know, not doing well for themselves. He wanted to see a thriving Rome. He opened up land for more Romans to make homes out of. He also increased the amount of grain distributed to the Roman people. Because all this and the friends that he had made, the expansion of the number of senators in the Senate by 44 BC, Caesar was appointed dictator in perpetuity, dictator for life. One month later, Caesar was on his way to the Senate House to announce to the Senate that he was going to head east and add the Parthian territory to Rome. When he got there, before he could make his announcement, he was stabbed 23 times by several senators led by Brutus. Why did Brutus do it? Arguably the biggest reason that Brutus uh, betrayed Caesar, assassinated Caesar, whatever terminology you want to use for it, or from his perspective is probably thwarted Caesar. Marcus Brutus was descended from Lucius Brutus, who deposed the last Roman king and then founded the Roman Republic. So from Marcus Brutus's perspective, he must have felt that if he went along with Caesar, he would be delivering Rome 
back into the hands of tyrants, of kings, and undoing what his ancestor had established. Unfortunately for Brutus, it was too little too late. Caesar had already earned the loyalty of the people of Rome, who were then outraged at the Senate and sided with Caesar's successor and lieutenants, notably Octavian Caesar and Mark Antony. His nephew Octavian would later change his name to Augustus and would become the first emperor of Rome, thus declaring Rome to no longer be a republic, but to be an empire. Julius Caesar very well may have been a benevolent ruler to his country. He wanted to strengthen Rome to ensure that it would not fracture. He seemed to legitimately care for the Roman citizenry. But to the point where the only person he really trusted to fix Rome was himself. And he took as much power as he possibly could because he was the only person he trusted to fix Rome. The precedent that he set would strengthen Rome immensely, but in the historical short term. Now imagine you're holding an object. I can't think of one specifically, but just just work with me here. An object that requires a firm grip to keep it from falling apart. Now, what Julius Caesar did was he provided the firm grip. But each ruler, each emperor who followed him would have a slightly tighter and tighter grip until it became so tight that it was squeezed so hard that it would break and fracture because of it. At one point, Caesar was quoted as saying, all bad precedents begin as justifiable measures. There's a certain sense of irony to that, as he himself set the bad precedent of becoming a leader who was supposed to rule for life. And he ended up dooming Rome with the bad precedent that he started. Caesar both saved and doomed Rome. With the Roman Republic no more, we would not see a country of its like until the forming of the United States of America, who looked at the lessons of Rome created even more checks and more balances with three branches of government as opposed to just a senate and consuls with each senator having various roles. This way the United States could make it more difficult for a Caesar to come along. Now despite Julius Caesar becoming a dictator and laying the foundation for Rome's downfall, he's still someone to admire. 
He has a lot of strong leadership qualities that men should emulate today. He connected with his army, as I've mentioned earlier, and talked with them long enough to understand their problems and their goals. The act of helping them both helped the soldiers as well as Caesar. Because Caesar couldn't do everything that he did without their trust and loyalty. Caesar was a jack-of-all-trades. He was a politician, a military man, a public speaker, a negotiator. He was not afraid to get in the thick of it alongside his soldiers. And Caesar also celebrated his victories. I forgot to mention this earlier, but when Caesar returned to Rome and the Senate faction with Pompey had fled, Caesar had his triumph for his army when he set foot in Rome in 49. He celebrated his victories with all those who helped him. His army and the people praised him, and he in turn praised them. Despite the negative things that Julius Caesar did, you can still look at the positive things to admire him for. Now, the next episode of Ancient Rome will be my last one for a while. I want to give Rome a break and revisit it later so that I don't burn myself out on it. So the next one, I will take a look at the last good emperor, Marcus Aurelius, one of the more famous practitioners of Stoicism. It's a philosophy that a lot of people can use to tackle the challenges of life. But that's next time. Now, to wrap this up, with the current tense political and cultural climate we're living in, I thought it would be appropriate to leave you with a quote by Julius Caesar as almost a warning to think about. And it goes like this. Quote, when the drums of war have reached a fever pitch and the blood boils with hate and the mind closed, the leader will have no need in seizing the rights of the citizenry. Rather, the citizenry, infused with fear, will offer up their rights to the leader and do so gladly. End quote. Thanks for listening.